The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. This episode contains descriptions of extreme violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Uh, he was, he conducted a reign of terror uh, in northwest Missouri, over seven counties for over 15 years, committing a range of crimes that uh, would defy your imagination if I were to go into them all. Finally, uh, in July of 1981, he was shot to death as he sat in his truck uh, with his wife on the main street of Skidmore uh, at 10.30 at in the morning. There were between 45 and 50 people on the street who uh, were in a position to witness the shooting. Uh, there have been three grand jury investigations, and there have been no indictments. He was a perfect client. He was always a gentleman as far as I was concerned. I had no evidence whatsoever. Uh, that he was a bully. Now, I was somewhat suspicious when he kept getting charged with his numerous crimes. But you must understand that he came in the office, he never tried to second-guess me, he was always a gentleman, and he always said, I'm innocent. I didn't do it. Uh, he had, at the very last, he got two years for felonious assault, and uh, he never had a final conviction because we had filed a motion for new trial. And after he was killed, uh, I understand that the judge had the prosecutor, the, pro the file was sealed, uh, we felt very confident that we were going to get a new trial. He uh, raped uh, young women. He picked them off the school bus, took them down to St. Joe, molested them. He uh, would bash uh, a woman that was the mother of his child across the face with a shotgun. He also shot uh, a farmer in the stomach and in the face at point-blank range. How did it get to the point where the people of Skidmore felt that the only way to deal with Ken McElroy was to kill him? How did the system leave them that exposed. When the system starts to break down, at some point, right or wrong, the people will begin to protect themselves. This is the story about a small town in rural Missouri that's been hiding a very big secret for close to 40 years. A small town that bound themselves tightly together in solidarity in order to eliminate a monstrous problem. For decades, Kenneth Rex McElroy, otherwise known as the town bully, literally raped pillaged and terrorized the families of Skidmore, Missouri. Operating very much like a mob boss, he managed to evade the law time and time again, and it appeared he was untouchable. That is, until a few of the townspeople decided to take matters into their own hands. In the 80s, Skidmore, Missouri, which is located roughly 80 miles northwest of Kansas City, consisted of 450 people, mostly of which were farmers. If you blinked while driving through the town, you'd probably miss it. Although, there was no real reason to ever drive through the town, because there was nothing of real interest surrounding it. 
If you drove to Skidmore, it was because your destination was Skidmore. But what's even more peculiar about this town, other than its size, is that for a town so small, it has a rich history of violence. In 2004, pregnant Bobby Jo Stinton was murdered and had her eight-month-old baby cut from her womb. A day later, police found the infant in Melbourne, Kansas, in the custody of the woman who murdered Bobby for her baby. In 2001, 20-year-old Branson Perry mysteriously disappeared from his front yard, never to be seen again. And in 2000, 25-year-old Wendy Gillenwater was stomped to death by her boyfriend. It's so strange that for such an unremarkable place, so many unspeakable things have happened there. And what's really put this small town on the map hasn't been the crimes themselves that have taken place there, but the unwavering silence of the townspeople regarding the death of Kenneth McElroy who was shot in broad daylight on July 10th, 1981. Police arrived on the scene to find bullet casings from two separate guns and McElroy, dead with his head slumped on his chest, the windows of his truck blown out. As many as 60 people were reported to have been in the crowd around Ken when he was shot, but no one was talking. Join me now as we venture further into this mysterious story about a man who had terrorized a town for years until he was struck down in a moment of vigilante justice and how a town got away with murder. Once the shroud of silence fell, there was going to be no one talking, said Cheryl Houston, whose elderly father, Bo Bowenkamp, had been shot by McElroy. She had also watched the shooting of McElroy from her family's grocery store, but like the others, claims she did not see the gunman. We were so bitter and so angry at the law letting us down that it came to somebody taking matters in their own hands. No one has any idea what a nightmare we lived. Three grand juries heard evidence, but no one was ever indicted. Richard McFadden, the lawyer who represented McElroy, believes that one of the gunmen was a suspect named by Ken's widow, who was seated beside him in the truck when he was shot. The town got away with murder, Mr. McFadden said. It didn't take long for a storm cloud of media frenzy to descend upon the little town of Skidmore, desperate to find out who had fired the guns. But the townspeople wouldn't budge. In fact, they wouldn't even entertain a conversation with someone from the press. They were bound and determined to take the identity of the shooters with them to the grave. What they really wanted 
was all this to just disappear and go back to being a simple town again. Meanwhile, a lawyer by the name of Harry McLean became increasingly intrigued by the story he saw unfolding in the news. He wasn't so much interested in who the town was protecting by their silence, he was intrigued by the townspeople themselves and the strength of their unity. As a lawyer, he wondered how Ken had managed to get off on so many felony charges for so many years. After seeing that no charges were laid for McElroy's murder, he decided he would take a shot at investigating and writing the story of Skidmore. And what he managed to accomplish was no small feat. packed a suitcase, got in my car, and headed across the state of Nebraska. Not having any particular idea what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. It felt like that I was crossing Nebraska. The car was going slower and slower and slower until I was going about 35 miles an hour because I was not anxious to get there. How am I going to do what nobody else can do? It's on the road to nowhere. When you drive in, you see the town of 450 people, and then you go through a residential, maybe a five-block residential area, and then you go down a hill, and you come to a set of railroad tracks and a big chemical factory. And it's basically a one-block business district. At that point, they had a gas station, grocery store, bank, and post office. And you just get a sense of how incredibly small it is. This place just seemed tiny, which was not obviously going to work to my, to my advantage because, I mean, I knew how tight they would be. So I spent that first night in Maryville. And the next morning, drove into Skidmore's real kind of a roller coaster uh, ride of hills, twists and turns, and pulled into the little community and um, saw Mom's Cafe on the left-hand side, and I'd seen pictures of that before, and parked in front of it and thought, well, you know, if this is what you're going to do, you're going to have to start doing it right now. And I walked inside, and when I hit the screen door, I could see there were four or five tables of farmers in there with their seed dealer hats on, and, and I opened the screen door, and it slammed behind me, and the place went completely silent. It's like somebody had shut off the sound, and I tried to order a cup of coffee. I was never waited on. I sat there for about, oh, seemed like a couple hours, probably about 10 minutes. Finally realized I wasn't going to get waited on, turned around and left, and as I heard the screen door slamming behind me... I heard the conversation pick up again, and that was kind of confirmed what what I knew the difficulty was going to be. I mean, that was my first taste of, of, of what I was up against that morning at the coffee shop. Now, 
Not only did Harry visit the town of Skidmore, he lived there on and off for three to four years. He moved in with a farming family and became one of the townspeople. He ate with them, he fished with them, he even helped out on the farm and ran farming equipment. He slowly worked his way into the hearts of the people who were initially suspicious of his intentions. During these years, Harry interviewed over 100 people, some on multiple occasions, and what he discovered was a spider web of criminal activity orchestrated at the hands of McElroy. He'd been like a hurricane wreaking havoc in the town of Skidmore and surrounding areas, and it was clear where he'd been by the sheer devastation he left in his wake. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's go back to where it all started, with McElroy's childhood. Ken was born in 1934 to migrant farmers Tony and Mabel McElroy, the second youngest of 16 children. Education wasn't necessarily of great importance during the time Ken was growing up. Families were struggling just to feed their children as they made their way out of the Great Depression. Around the fifth grade, McElroy dropped out of school and started helping out on the farm. It's been reported that at some point in time, McElroy fell off a hay wagon and may have suffered a brain injury. Although there isn't a lot documented about Ken's childhood, Harry got the sense through his interviews that even his dad wasn't very fond of him growing up. He, he was the second youngest and it was clear he was not uh, his dad's favorite. And his dad, Tony McElroy, was very harsh to put it mildly, and favored some kids and didn't favor others, and Ken was not one that he favored. And Ken was much closer to his mother than his father. When Ken was around the age of 18, he met and married his first of many young wives. Her name was Oletta, only 16 years old. Soon after, they moved to Denver, where a family member who was a construction foreman gave Ken a job. One day while Ken was working, he experienced a second brain injury following a cribbing form, falling on his safety helmet, and splitting his scalp. McElroy told people that this injury resulted in a steel plate being implanted in his head. The injury had long-lasting repercussions, and Ken decided to move him and his wife back to Missouri. Unable to obtain any kind of consistent work, he decided to start stealing and reselling things to make ends meet. Essentially, starting a new career, but in crime, and one he was actually really good at. He started out by stealing one or two hogs from this farmer or that, and then selling them and then also stealing furniture, antiques, and then chemicals. Ken became a man that was infamously known by the whole community, the town bully of Skidmore. He terrorized people he wanted into a corner and then kept them there 
under his thumb for as long as he pleased. And as he grew into a man, his physical appearance alone became intimidating all on its own. He kept his hair slicked back and dyed jet black while maintaining a set of bushy black sideburns that framed his jawline. Weighing in at approximately 270 pounds, this man was giant-like in appearance. Always armed with a gun, McElroy would take whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and nobody dared ask questions. If you happened to cross him in any way he didn't like, you'd be sure to suffer the consequences. Children and adults, both men and women, even animals, nobody was safe from this man. He also fathered over 10 children, but it wouldn't be surprising in the least if there were more. Fidelity was never something McElroy held in high regard. A lot of his marriages were strategic in nature in order for him to avoid being convicted of criminal offenses. For instance, he once shot a 15-year-old girl by the name of Sharon, who he'd been having sexual encounters with. During an argument one night, Ken pulled a gun on her and by accident shot her under the chin. In order to avoid being prosecuted for her injuries, he decided to divorce his first wife, Oletta, and marry her so she couldn't testify against him. Several wives and many children later, Ken met his youngest and last wife, Trina, when she was only 12 years old. He went about his usual routine of winning young girls over by lavishing attention on her, taking her out of class to buy her clothes and candy. But not too soon after, did those day trips turn into visits to a nearby motel where he would rape her? Schoolmates would recall seeing her on the bus crying. Although her parents became suspicious and her father told McElroy on several occasions to leave his daughter alone, he never listened. What Ken wanted Ken got. A year later, Trina became pregnant with McElroy's child, and she soon moved in with him. Two weeks after giving birth, Ken came home and summoned Trina from another room, holding their baby who was crying at the time, she asked why. He simply told her that she needed to come into the other room and remove her clothing. Upon entering the room, she noticed a loaded rifle on the couch. So she placed her crying baby down and did exactly what Ken told her to do. Trina couldn't take it anymore. All of the sexual, physical, 
Mental and emotional abuse had become too much for her, and she tried to escape to her parents' home with her newborn son and one of McElroy's other girls, named Alice. But McElroy, being the controlling man he was, wouldn't have it, and he discovered where Trina and Alice were. He demanded they return back home with him. He threatened to kill them all if they didn't listen, and soon they did as he said. Not only did Trina and Alice pay for their disobedience by physical punishment, McElroy then returned to Trina's parents' home, shot their dog, and set their house on fire. During a doctor's appointment, young Trina decided to talk about her experiences, which led to her and the baby being placed into a foster home for protection. McElroy then offered a reward to anyone that could find out where Trina and the baby had been taken, and eventually he found them. He would sit for hours outside of their home and make phone calls threatening the foster family. Trina was so terrified of Ken that on several occasions she'd gotten so upset it took the foster family hours to calm her down. Eventually, Trina and her child moved to her grandparents' home. But feeling unhappy, isolated, and alone, Trina eventually called McElroy and asked that he bring her and the baby back to the ranch. McElroy was granted permission to marry Trina by her terrified parents after threatening them once again, and Trina dropped all of her original allegations. It may be difficult for a lot of people to understand why Trina made the decision to go back to McElroy after all she'd endured. What also confused the townspeople is how Trina went from being one of Ken's victims to riding shotgun with him and helping him terrorize the community. A licensed therapist named Brooke from Atlanta explains why that may have happened. Stockholm Syndrome is strong emotional ties that develop between two persons where one person is intermittently harassing, beating, threatening, abusing, or intimidating the other. Trina was basically kidnapped and groomed by Ken starting at age 12. Within two years, she had a baby. When you think about kids that are 12 years old, they still need a tremendous amount of structure to be put in place by the people who take care of them. Not only physical structure like a house to live in, but time structure. They need someone to help them get to school on time and complete their homework and not forget to take their bath. They also need a lot of emotional structure. 12-year-olds are not capable of adult decision-making. They don't have the rational thinking that adults have. They don't have emotional maturity at that point. So Trina essentially went from having parents to having Ken function as her parent. While he was functioning as her parent, he was also raping her, beating her, emotionally abusing her. 
So he was basically shaping her reality. Good parents can put in place some really strong emotional structure for children. Trina, on the other hand, was with a man who treated her as though she was unlovable. That she couldn't succeed at anything, that he was the only one who could take care of her, that she should be frightened of him. As their lives went on and she became more of an adult, she started to participate with him in his harassment of the town. And I think a lot of people might feel confused by that, but if she could sort of please him with her behavior, then she could temporarily remove the target from her back of his abuse, almost like getting the enemy on your side. She may have even been able to feel approval from him, which we all have as a drive, and certainly she wasn't getting approval from anywhere else. When you think about her emotional maturity and basically the reality in which she lived, emotionally and intellectually, that had been created by Ken, it makes perfect sense. Throughout McElroy's life, he had been indicted on a range of criminal charges, which included child molestation, rape, attempted murder, and burglary. Harry explains what his tactic was in escaping a prison sentence every time. You can just call him a bully, but he was a lot more than that. I mean, he was extremely intelligent in a way that, you know, the guy went over 20 years without being successfully prosecuted. He managed to outwit every aspect of the criminal justice system. He was barely literate. I've seen his signature. and it's, I guess you can make out his name, but I don't think he could read very well. And yet he instinctively was able to outthink prosecutors, judges, state patrolmen, the whole system for over 20 years. So, yeah, he's a bully in a way, but he's, he's a lot smarter than most bullies. He had his own flock of people that worked for him. They were all very loyal to him. My boss, he treated those people quite well. He shared stuff with them. He was nice to them and took care of them. What he came to understand was no witness, no case. If there was not a witness, then there was no case and the prosecutor had to drop it. But he understood that instinctively, so he went after the witnesses. And the witnesses disappeared, or changed their story, or moved somewhere they couldn't find them. A lot of it was he, he just told them, one way or another, that if this happened, you know, if, if they went to court and testified, this is what was gonna happen to them. And a lot of them, he didn't have to tell them. They, they understood it, if not, if not, when the incident happened, soon afterwards, they understood who he was and what was going to happen. So in a, in a lot of the cases, the, the witnesses just disappeared. They, by, by disappeared, I mean, they all of a sudden didn't, didn't remember what had happened and or actually rebutted what had happened, changed their stories about what had happened with, with McElroy. All of Skidmore knew how violent and unpredictable Ken was. It's what made him so frightening. What scared people was his randomness. He could be sitting in a bar having a casual conversation with the bartender. Somebody said something that was a little off. And the next day, he would be out at their 
farm pulling shotguns on him, shooting him in the stomach or shooting over the house. And that, that's what gave him a, a, a lot of his power was it went way beyond what he actually did. He would threaten people and then about one out of every 10 times, he would follow through on it. He would do what he said he was gonna do. And that just, that had the effect of terrifying people. He would look at people and threaten them with his eyes and they would, they'd be terrified. They'd go home and lock their doors. He roamed all over Northwest Missouri. I've got his activity in 13 different counties in Northwest Missouri. He went up into Iowa into two different counties and he went west across the border into Kansas. So he roamed a pretty broad area. And my estimate, and I don't remember exactly how calculated it now, was that, that his reign of terror, whatever you want to call it, went on for over 20 years. The last two or three years, that's when the psychological battle with the town of Skidmore started, when he thought they were saying things about him and saying things about his family. McElroy's ultimate downfall commenced in 1980 when one of his children, a daughter he had with Trina, was caught trying to steal some jawbreakers from the local grocery store. This grocery store was owned by 70-year-old Bo Bowenkamp and his wife, Lois. The Kansas City Star reported that Lois called the theft a misunderstanding and tried to make peace with the McElroy family. But McElroy refused to let it slide and began harassing the elderly couple. It started with him sitting outside the Bowen Camp residence in his truck, and every so often, shooting his gun off into the air. He'd follow them around, and on one occasion, took things too far. On a summer evening in July of 1980, Bo Bowen Camp was standing outside of his loading dock of his grocery store when McElroy drove up and shot him in the neck, leaving him for dead. Miraculously, Bo survived, and equally amazing was that McElroy actually was convicted. However, much to the shock of the entire community, he was released on bail awaiting his appeal. Within hours, McElroy was ready to take his revenge on Bo. An agitated Ken was soon seen in the DG Tavern, his local haunt, where he was brandishing an M1 rifle, which of course violated the terms of his bail. But his lawyer, Richard McFadden, managed to postpone his appeal hearing once again. The townspeople were at their wits' end. They felt the judicial system had repeatedly failed them, and they had to do something. Harry explains what happened next. After he was convicted, the, the judge turned him loose uh, on an appeal bond, which should never have happened. Uh, it wouldn't happen in most states, particularly given that situation. Well, now you've got wounded, really pissed off, angry bull. Basically, it was like the last straw. That was kind of like it for them in terms of the criminal justice system working, you know, I mean, he, here, here was a guy who 
finally been convicted and was tracking down witnesses and threatening to shoot him. And they finally stood up, got to Syrian revoke his bail, and now was going to go on for another two weeks, which meant he had two more weeks to, to do what he was doing. Town gets together. All the guys say we're gonna we're gonna meet at the Legion Hall at the top of the street, and we're gonna we're gonna show McElroy that those days are over with, where he can intimidate us, and they're really starting to act like a, like a strong integrated community. If they went up and had a meeting and said, well, we still have to do something about McElroy. We're gonna do this, that, and the other thing to keep track of him. Probably about 65 of them left the Legion Hall, go down the street, a bunch of them go into the tavern, a bunch of them stay on the street, a bunch of them stay up the top of the hill at a gas station. He, he comes out with Trina, gets in his truck, and two people on the other side of the street open up. Trina's sitting right next to him. Trina identified uh, one rancher, Bill Clement, as the shooter. Every time she opened her mouth about it, she said, I turned around, I saw Del Clement reach inside his pickup truck, pull out his rifle, and cock it. I screamed at Ken, Ken, they're gonna shoot you, and Ken didn't. was really lighting a cigarette and ignored me, and, uh, and off it went. Not one person called an ambulance as McElroy lay bleeding to death, surrounded by the wide eyes of the town he had once held in fear. Despite the abundance of eyewitnesses to the murder, no one was ever charged, and the jury concluded that McElroy was killed by a person or persons unknown. Trina claimed she knew who one of the shooters was, but no one would ever corroborate her claims. Trina eventually filed a wrongful death lawsuit on July 9, 1984, almost three years to the day after McElroy's death. The case was settled out of court for $17,600, but guilt was never admitted by any of the parties involved. Ken was buried at St. Joseph, Missouri's Memorial Park Cemetery and Trina went on to remarry and have other children. She died as Trina Williams on January 24, 2012. And the town of Skidmore, Missouri has kept its silence. Not even the FBI could crack this mystifying case. And it's quite possible the truth about what really happened will end up being buried with the townspeople. How Kenneth Rex McElroy became the man that he was will always remain an enigma. Although there is some speculation around his brain injuries and the abuse he experienced as a child, Brooke provides us with a little more insight. His behavior certainly is in line with someone who would have an antisocial personality disorder. 
Antisocial personality disorder, some of the signs that you might see are disregard for a sense of right and wrong, which we obviously see in his case, persistent lying or deceit to exploit others, being callous, cynical, and disrespectful of others, using charm or wit to manipulate others for personal gain and pleasure, arrogance, a sense of superiority, being extremely opinionated, recurring problems with the law, including criminal behavior, repeatedly violating the rights of others through intimidation and dishonesty, impulsiveness, failure to plan ahead, hostility, irritability, agitation, aggression, violence, lack of empathy for others. The list kind of goes on and on, but in Ken's case, I feel like we can pretty much agree that he fits each and every one of those signs and symptoms. As far as his attraction to young people, it's possible that for Ken, the only way he felt like he could exert control over people like he wanted to was if he got to them when they were young enough that he could use that to his advantage. In some cases, people who sexually violate children, it's less about the arousal, it's more about the expression of power and inflicting pain on a person. Frequently, connections can be made, early childhood experiences, sometimes even preverbal trauma, which would happen as a baby. Preverbal trauma is a traumatic experience that happens to an infant who doesn't yet have any language to describe what happened or any ability to understand an adult's interpretation of what happened. People don't tend to start usually having memories until the age of four. There can be traumatic experiences that happen during this stage of life that sort of get locked in the unconscious brain. People often don't remember them outright. They would never talk about them, but they sort of live in your internal world in your unconscious somewhere and can end up driving behavior. Certainly, if he received a head injury as a child, it could have been a traumatic brain injury and there are parts of the brain that are associated with different behaviors and different areas of functioning. It's always possible he could have sustained some kind of brain damage that also was a factor in his behaviors. It's not a surprise at all to hear that Ken's father was abusive to them. Typically, when you see a person who is so cruel to others, that came from somewhere. So it, it never surprises me to hear that someone who abuses has been abused themselves. Since writing his book about the town of Skidmore, called In Broad Daylight, Harry has also written another book called The Story Behind Broad Daylight, where he talks about his experience living in Skidmore and getting to know the townspeople. We asked Harry to tell us a little bit about how the story personally impacted him. You know, I wasn't a journalist before this, but I... I kind of instinctively sensed 
that you you had to stay distant from that, or or it would it would affect your ability to 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 get the story. When you listen to Romaine Henry, or you listen to some of the kids, or you listen to Alice Woods talk about how he beat her up, whacked her in the head with a shotgun, and so forth, you kind of stopped. Uh, stopped isn't the right word, but I kind of kept it at a distance and tried to be, you know, understanding and have the right response to her. But if you get caught up in it, if, if you feel it, if you feel that sort of stuff personally, it's. I think it's going to affect your ability to continue to get the stories. The one that got me the most, the one that really upset me or had the biggest impact on me was, was Trina. Her, her age and the raping and all that and the trauma, um, that was the hardest one for me to, to absorb and deal with and not get semi-traumatized myself. But you could hear it in her voice and you could see it in her eyes, you know, what, what, what he had done to her and the impact of it. But by and large, I kind of, you know, I think journalists have to do this. They have to kind of keep it, keep some space in there. It doesn't mean you're cold-hearted or, or whatever, you don't feel it, but you kind of, kind of keep a hold of yourself. If you get sucked into it, then you might get lost. I mean, I, I still go back there every other summer, probably, and see who's still around. I still feel very much a part of that, that community. I'm, they actually like the book, not all, but most of them. And to the extent that they people would come in, like another magazine writer or, or whatever, and say, "Well, we don't talk," and they'd say, "Go read this book. Go read this book. It tells the whole story. Leave me alone." <laughs> A special thank you to Casey Troja. Sky Harvey, Sherry Cartier, Kilogram Jam, Maggie, Aaron Dombrowski, Evan Wyatt, Farron Nash, Stephanie Weaver, Tyson Black, Ronald Englund, Crystal Alice, Valentina Morelli, Kay Noel, Heidi, Maggie James, Sinead Newman, Brenton Williams, Louise Hunter, Lamabug, Ryan MacArthur, Christy Tarver, Hey Why the Face, Taylor Ray Foster, Allison Foreman Rickert, Jessica Yon, our pals from Hillbilly Horror Stories, Jerry and Tracy, Mandy and Melissa from Moms and Murder, Javier from Pretend Radio, Jillian from Court Junkie, Haley from the Murder Road Trip Podcast, and Mike from Sword and Scale. Thank you so much. We really couldn't do this without your support. I would now like to introduce to you two podcasts, Moms and Murder. Hey guys, this is Mandy and Melissa from Moms and Murder, a true crime podcast featuring two moms who think they're funny. Trust us guys, we are. Join us each week as we discuss both the infamous and unfamiliar stories in the world of true crime. You can check us out on our website at momsandmurder.com and also connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We release new episodes on Tuesdays, so we hope you'll check us out. and American Crimecast. Hello, I am Private Investigator Shane Waters, 
host of the American Crimecast podcast, where I utilize my voice to speak out for those who have been silenced. From a nurse whose body was found hogtied but ruled a suicide, to a John Doe whose body was mutilated and dumped into a septic tank, I speak out for them all. Join me at accproductions.org. See you there. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run